in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to It's Not Just In Your Head. This is Max Golding. And we have, of course, the fabulous Harriet Fraud. Hello, hey, Harriet. Hey. <laughs> and um, for today, we have a very special guest named Bethany Morris, who is uh, an assistant professor of psychology at Point Park University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where she teaches and does theoretical and qualitative research. Uh, Dr. Morris is a transdisciplinary scholar whose work bridges critical psychology, literature, philosophy, history, psychoanalysis, uh, everything else, film studies, <laughs> like lists maybe 50 other things. Um, oh, and before I forget, actually, a uh, huge thanks to our patrons, First Winter, Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns, Justin Harper, and of course, Liam, big shout out for helping with the editing and social media. So yes. anyways, uh, Bethany, now that we're through our tech, our, our technological nightmare problems, um, Hello, who are you? And so, with, so actually real quick, so critical psychology was a term thrown in there and something else that you've also worked on and studied is community psychology. And so these two phrases, um, Harriet and I assume our listeners don't know a whole lot about because they're not really super mainstream. So what is critical psychology? What is community psychology? Why have most people never heard of these things? And why are you interested in these things? And how do they relate to each other as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, well, first off, um, thank you very much for having me on here. Um, I'm a, not a longtime listener, but a new listener that's dedicated. So I'm, I'm happy for uh, uh, podcasts that are um, addressing certain issues like this. Um, but the community psychology is a relatively new branch of psychology that uh, assumes a lot of the stuff that, that you all talk about here, that, you know, the individual we study in psychology is always already socially embedded. Um, so community psych looks at human suffering and, and flourishing as situated within the, the social, political, and, and the cultural. Um, and like, it's, it's a little bit different from traditional uh, social psychology in that it doesn't look to investigate like how the individual functions within groups or how groups you know, produce interesting behaviors or cognitions, but rather how to um, understand that there really is no outside to the social, that the human, human subject is uh, already constituted by the social rather than just like influenced by it. Um, so it, it differs from a lot of the mainstream approaches to psychology because it assumes a number of things um, that I think um, traditional psychology assumes things that is that uh, a community psychologist or a critical psychologist would take issue with. Um, so, so it assumes that, you know, the individual is a sort of closed circuit or entity that like is unto itself. Whereas community psychology, and, and I argue psychoanalysis also, um, assume that the human subject is, you know, a constellation of, of environmental factors and other people. Um, so, for example, one of the, like, the first sort of thought exercises I ask my students to do is, you know, give me an example of something that they do entirely on their own without the assistance or um, interference of any other person. 
Um, and, you know, the answers are usually pretty much the same. Some get creative when they're like, you know, well, I'll, I'll sleep outside with no bed that nobody else has built, you know, and I'll be all by myself <laughs> in, the, in the world, <laughs> you know. But we, we typically encounter the problem of language pretty quickly, um, whether they say, like, my dreams or, or my thoughts, they're, they're mine. And I'm like, mm, well, where did you get your language from, right? Mm. And that this idea that we inherit yes. language as well as an unconscious from another. Um, my arg- that's my argument anyway. Um, and that, you know, someone had to give them that language in order for them to form the thoughts they then believe to be their own. Um, so, so that's kind of where, where community psychology um, starts. And then it, it looks to engage in like action orientation toward like, uh, uh, like evaluating programs, um, uh, thinking about like community-based um, engagement through like non-for-profit, non-profit organizations, sorry, um, different like community mental health outreach programs. Um, so the it's, you know, participatory action research mixed with advocacy, um, program evaluation with all that uh, built into these assumptions about the human subject. Wow, that's Whoa. a lot. <laughs> now yeah. I can also see... <laughs> why and how it could relate to Lacan, because Lacan has that idea that um, human beings invented a clock on the basis of which they said time is objective. Mm -hmm. But there was a subjective idea to measure time and what time is was defined by people. Mm -hmm. So that it kind of shows the interdependence of us on human construction every place we turn. And I can see where it makes sense, community psychology, in terms of looking at how we're constituted. It kind of, Freud talked a little bit about instincts, which was off, but um, that you are the survivor of whatever family environment you were immersed in is very much an environmental thing since family's the first community that children are in. Quick, quick, quick question before we go on with that for Lacan, just because I, I assume a lot of listeners, even psychotherapists listening, right, if they're of like my generation of training, may not even know who Lacan is. If either of you could just give a little primer on who Lacan is and what makes Lacan uh, a distinct human in psychology. Yeah, it's- Oh, you, sorry, you, you go ahead. You're the guest. <laughs> Get a chance to go first. <laughs> sure. Um, Lacan is um, a, a French psychoanalyst uh, practicing um, and, and uh, preaching uh, primarily in the 1940s through to the, the 19, um, I think he died in 1980 something or other. Um, but uh, takes a lot of the work that, that Freud built with um, psychoanalysis and then marries it to some of the structuralist theory, um, some uh, looking at some uh, like linguistic theory, right? Um, and talking about how to basically bring Freud Freud's insights into a concern for the contemporary subject that is grounded in language that communicates, lives through speaking. Um, and so with, with Lacanian psychoanalysis, you're not so much, um, you know, forcing interpretations on things as much as listening to the way words work, uh, the way, way language um, kind of constitutes us. Um, and so 
as, as you said, Harriet, like early, early um, family life, right? I always think about a child who's just trying to pick up language while also picking up like energy and like, like various emotions from hostility to acceptance mm -hmm. and all of this stuff while also trying to become this like autonomous subject um, and, and having to make sense of things that don't make sense, right? The double meaning, double speak of language. Um, and, and that, that is sort of how we kind of find ourselves uh, as subjects later on in life that we're trying to make sense of this early stuff too, you know? Yeah, that's really a good way of summarizing it because what Lacan did was say that the unconscious of everyone is a language and works based on linguistic concepts and that with every experience or utterance that you have, there's a double register. One is a conscious register and the other is an unconscious register. And that by listening to people, you can pick up both registers that we don't necessarily pick up. Yeah. And that is and important. Absolutely. And that, that signifiers that words mean different things to different people. There's not a, a universal understanding. So when I teach my, my students about this, we talk about like, okay, you know, when you're a child, someone tells you you're a good girl or a good boy. And like that doesn't mean anything unto itself. You have to fill in the blanks of what that means. And that's going to be completely different for, for um, every single person. And yet we speak about it as if it's this like commonly understood term to be a good boy or to be a good girl. Um, and we can, we can analyze that culturally too, how that changes, but it, it sort of moves through the, the human subject in a different way. Yeah, you know, I like to look at it the way um, new Marxism looks at it, which is that there's the real and then the concrete real there, and then there's the thought. And they look like they're together and they have some correspondence, but they never really meet like two railroad tracks that seem to meet in the distance, mm -hmm. but they never really do connect. They relate, but they don't connect. And therefore one has to really interrogate what other people mean and what oneself means, because it's not as apparent as some people would think it is. But yeah, what do you mean? Sorry, it's really <laughs> <laughs> trying really hard there. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's great, right? Because we can, I think Harry and I could probably now talk for hours trying to address the question of what does it mean? Mm. And that is, that is sort of the point of Lacanian theory, right? Is that you're, you're going to keep speaking because of that, that gap that, that Harriet talks about between knowledge and, and speaking or the being, um, that, there, that there's a fundamental gap that produces desire. It's what, it's what keeps us talking. We're, eventually we'll get to it, right? We'll just keep talking and eventually there will be perfect understanding. And I think that's why it's, it's so radical compared to traditional psychology because some, some branches of psychology seem to assume that there's no gap, right? That we can... Mm -hmm. Um, we can really understand the human subject um, as an object, right? That has no desire, has nothing, um, has nothing closed off to itself, right? That that there's no split, um, and and you can sort of perfectly, you can perfectly know um, what a what a human subject or what a psychology of a person is without that gap. And I think yeah. that's that's troubling. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's really important. It's what Lacan talks about the mirror stage where the child looks in the mirror and recognizes himself or herself or itself, themselves, 
But at the same time, it sees a backward image of a person who's transformed by just the recognition in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And so that we can't really nail it down. And it gives us a level of humility, not that Lacan was very humble, he got quite arrogant, <laughs> but nonetheless, there are contradictions in everyone. Um, but still, that, that this sureness and this uh, kind of re reduction, and it's a particular critique of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which pigeonholes the complexity of a person's experience in order to diagnose her, him, or them into a pigeonhole that allows a medication. And that's, it's exactly the opposite spirit from the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM, because it says, look at the complexity rather than reduce it to simplicity and drug it. Well, mm -hmm. and, and this is, this is so off, like the, when we had our little interview question things, like this is like, cause now I'm so interested. I, Harriet, you'd missed the interview that I'd done with Catherine Liu, but it's one of the things that she had talked about like halfway through very passionately is like how frustrated she's become with uh, psychology as, like I said, of myself being like a newer sort of generation of, of trained therapists mm -hmm. where psychoanalysis has really sort of been on the decline, right? Like you, yes. when, you, when you take like a psych 101 class, they often tell you Freud's full of shit and it's all about, yeah. it's basically all about CBT, right? Like everything's sort of centrally behavioral at this point. I don't want to say everything, right? There's little pockets, but I mean, what do you get? So it sounds like the two of you, I'm, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with Lacan. I've tried to read some Lacan. I found it to be like wildly inaccessible. I did understand some concepts and I thought it was really, really interesting. I almost think Lacanian analysis and the newer realm of like psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, as weird as that sounds, could be really beautifully married. I think because of the the sort of um, yeah. the the elimination of of boundaries and and compartmentalization of of different like psychic experiences. But anyway, that's maybe for another time. But I'm curious. I mean, I guess Bethany, you since you're our guest, right? Of like what? Because um, because you, if you're into the Lacanian, or if you call it Lacanian model, or 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 just you're just you're just um, a fan of it, and psychoanalysis generally. I mean, how do you think we got to this point, right? Where like psychoanalysis is. It's not like underground, but it's almost like you almost have to be careful. You have to be like careful, right? Like if you're around like therapists who like look around and be like, is it okay if I talk about psychoanalysis? Or are you gonna are you gonna tell me that's not an evidence-based thing or something like that? Like how do you think we got to this point in in the psychology world? Yeah, I mean there's I think there's lots of different trajectories you could you could follow there, right? Where you know, Anna Freud comes over with um, with some other psychoanalysts um, and, and spreads it in, in America, but it gets turned into maybe ego psychology, where it's about not addressing the unconscious, but really addressing um, how, to, how to shore up the ego, how to fight back against that um, that anxiety that's present in the mirror stage, right? Like that, that Harriet mentions where you, you see an image that you're supposed to identify with, but there's sort of like a gap, a disconnect between the image and the experience. And that's, you, you wanna close that gap as much as possible. Um, and, and so I think bringing, bringing those sorts of insights over um, to America, it got turned into almost like a marketing tool, right? I'm thinking of, um, in particular, Adam Curtis's documentary, um, The Century of the Self. He has uh, a great uh, elaboration on this where in the 1960s, it turns into um, basically like uh, subliminal perception marketing stuff that's not really 
anything, <laughs> but um, it, it becomes, people get concerned about that. Um, at the same time, you know, psychology is really trying to marry itself to the empirical sciences. That I, I just, I don't think it can do that um, mm -hmm. because it, you, you can't do away with human subjectivity um, is, is my, um, my issue. And so I think a lot of the, um, the, the concern about Freud is because we want to, I think we really want to believe that science in psychology is the answer. And, and I, I think as soon as you, you start to wrestle with that, you, you have this like extra, you have this anxiety, this gap that is present that is really disturbing. I mean, I, my, my theory is right. that this is what all contemporary horror movies are about, right? Like they're, they're trying to demonstrate this, um, this gap between, knowing thyself and having a, a, a part of the self that is completely foreclosed um, that just kind of like pokes its way into your uh, experience, you know? And, and that is, there's, there's not really a way to deal with that scientifically, I don't think, because by nature it's what, what doesn't, you know, what can't be replica, uh, replicated or uh, can't be reliably accessed by every single person, you know, that sort of stuff. Right. Well, well, I, I think that it's really important that our listeners know a couple of things. One is that Lacan wrote in a deliberately difficult manner to try to replicate the thinking right. of the unconscious. Mm -hmm. Anika Lemaire wrote an amazing book called Lemaire's Lacan, he, which was authorized by Lacan himself, and it, it explains it very well and doesn't try to embody the kind of thinking that's hard to find and hard to follow, but rather makes a really excellent analysis. So if anybody's interested, they should try reading Lemaire's Lacan instead of Jacques Lacan himself. Mm -hmm. The other thing is it's a political decision. The United States differs from Europe in that to be a psychiatrist, you have to be an MD in the United States. You really don't in France and other places because they understand the philosophic underpinnings that are not medical. But in order to be accepted in the American medical system and for insurance coverage, they try to make a scientific analysis and they attribute people's psychology and their troubles to uh, a hormonal or medical imbalance, whereas people who are critiques of that kind of thinking show that every feeling, every act has its own biochemical concomitant. So if you want to measure people who are unhappy, of course there'll they'll be an imbalance. Nobody has a perfect balance. And every mental state and every emotional state has a biochemical component, the end. But I think the American insurance and medical and pharmaceutical industries have colluded together to try to make psychology a medical scientific issue rather than a philosophic issue, looking at the subjectivity mm -hmm. of an, an individual embedded as he, she, they are in a social network, so that it's a political move in our country as well, that sort of may, is a tributary into a profit system. Uh, 
I so yeah, and all all of that kind of makes me think too that so capitalism and certain ways of thinking scientifically, I think, go hand in hand when you really start to compartmentalize and chop things up into little like waffle waffly boxes, you know? Because <laughs> yeah. like because like you know, I think anyone that's like lived in the real world knows that you can't, you know, it's helpful. Like I make a lot of like to-do lists and I use my Google calendar and crap, you know, like we, you know, you have to like, you have to do some waffle things, but, but things are a lot messier than that actually, you know? Mm. And I think um, one thing that you said earlier, Bethany, about the horror films, this just came to mind. This is a Lacanian thing since we're talking about it, but I was thinking that science really likes to chop things up into smaller pieces to try to observe them. And that's (laughs) kind of what all these slasher films are, right? It's like this terror of like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> totally, it's a total stretch. But I also wanted to maybe do a, a Lacanian jump because we're going to talk about BPD, right? Um, which is borderline personality disorder. Is is often I think the way that it's compart- compartmentalizedly <laughs> conceptualized within the medical model is that you have these cluster of symptoms and there's this pathological thing, and it's mostly women who experience borderline personality disorder. And you know, also talking about slasher films and. Cutting because often there's like self harm and cutting and suicidality and everything. I, I wanted to ask because you'd written about that in your Mad in America article, and just how just your conceptualization of borderline personality disorder from this perspective, which sounds like your perspective is very different than like um, I don't know. I guess the mainstream or medical conceptualization of BPD. Sorry, it's a, it's a big jump, but <laughs> I tried to. Yeah. Kind of- what we were saying. I, yeah, I, th- I think I see what you're saying. I would just yeah. uh, clarify that, you know, if we're going to watch good horror movies to talk about Lacanian psychoanalysis, it's not the slasher films. It's like the existential horrors, like hereditary. Uh, That's my only disclaimer. But, uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so with, with, um, I, you know, I have I've taken a number of perspectives on borderline. It's something that's fascinated me since like my undergrad um, because of this disclaimer that kept popping up, like 75% of, of people diagnosed typically are women. Um, and I used to just believe that it was like this child of a sexist society and the psi complex coming together. Right. Um, but I think there, and I think there's definitely some use in thinking about it that way and asking about the cultural discourses around borderline personality, as well as, you know, the very interesting clinical literature about it. Um, and, and, but we can look at the symptoms too, right? Especially those linked, like you're, like you're saying, to um, issues of like impulsivity as maybe being uh, less problematic when they're being exhibited by a man. So I think, I think that's in there, right? The, the cultural um, and political considerations. But that, the, the issue with that perspective is it only got me so far in that it doesn't really address um, the person who is the one suffering, mm-hmm. um, nor does it really address the fact that Many people are quite disturbed by some of the behaviors of of people with with borderline, like like you're saying, like self harm. Um, regardless of you know if that origin of the disturbance is in in the culture, right? Um, and so my my understanding of BPD now is is kind of informed both from like the Lacanian psychoanalytic as well as uh, perspective as well as the sociocultural phenomena that we see. Um, so, so in Lacanian psychoanalysis, you would not have the typical like DSM disorders. Um, you would not have like personality disorders, nor would you have personalities like we typically talk about them, like, you know, MBTI or like the big five uh, personality traits. Um, 
Instead, what we think of is subjective structures, so ways in which the subject is organized to address like particular existential questions. Um, and so this goes back to what, what Harriet's saying, right? This is one of the reasons why it's not a popular method of therapy here is because this, this it takes a long time, right? Like it takes a long time to address these situations. It's expensive. <laughs> it's expensive, um, right? But what's interesting is it's actually very popular in um, parts of the world that have um, national healthcare service, right? Yeah, um, like France. Like France. It's also really, really huge in South America right now. There's some interesting work because it's tied actually to social justice initiatives. Um, but um, yeah, so, so personality and, and pathology are kind of wrapped up um, the same uh, together um, uh, for, for everyone. Like, and, and our symptoms then are um, our personality traits and our behaviors. So borderline personality is typically understood um, as a person, what we would say with a, a hysteric structure who's in distress. So um, for the person with a hysteric structure, the, the question that typically motivates them is their relationship to the other with a, a sort of assumption that they are, they kind of take on the, the um, assumptions about what the other person lacks. They frequently try to like ascertain the desire of what other people want for them and then try to be that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can probably imagine that, you know, like this is a pretty stressful situation, but um, most people are, are able to kind of sort of come to a conclusion that like X is whatever, what other people love about me. And then they, they kind of become that. So the the earlier example of like, you know, a little girl may learn from a young age that uh, being a smart little girl is is what of des- is like desired of her, and then she can just be that for the other. Um, the other being, you know, like an early caregiver, like the mother. Um, but that would like translate to to later relationships, kind of like a blueprint. So the person with BPD, the way I understand it, um, may not have had the ability to really settle on an answer about what they can be for another, what what is desired. Um, from them by another. Um, and usually because, you know, you see in the, the literature, um, they tend to have um, uh, either cold or uncaring or neglectful or preoccupied um, primary caregivers. Um, and, and typically, you know, the, the old literature says mother, but I think we can update that, right? To just mm-hmm. a, a family that is, is not always um, uh, warm to to the desire of the person right that they they kind of there's not a lot of expected from them right and so I think of it that way but then can't separate it from those sociocultural issues like the fact that the majority of people with BPD are women um that and that there's almost like a fear of them right especially after movies like Fatal Attraction where there's like the woman who does not respect boundaries will go so far as to destroy you and you know um and that, that can't really be separated about certain assumptions about femininity um, as, well, as well as motherhood, right? And, and I think Lacan's understanding of, of that kind of helps bridge those um, cultural discourses and fear and anxiety with the suffering of the person. Sorry, that was kind of long-winded, but hopefully. I think so too. And I think one of the reasons that women are diagnosed with that um, more than men is that First of all, to be a good mother means to imagine the desire of an inarticulate being and to fill that child with your imagination of her, his, or their desire. Mm -hmm. And 
Also, we are trained to be the emotional caregiver, which means that we have to imagine the, in, the unarticulated desires of our husbands and meet their inarticulate needs. That's our job mm-hmm. as wives and mothers. It has been the emotional connectors in the family. And so that having that kind of need to be the desire of the other is powerful. And in my long experience, because I have 46 years of experience treating clients, is that the clients that I have who self-harm, self-harm because they're fulfilling the desire of a partner or someone else, that they show themselves to be crazy so that they can be taken under control. Mm -hmm. And so that the social imperatives of women are entirely commingled with that diagnosis. And those aren't discussed as Bethany, you talked about earlier, they're not in the equation. So the equation doesn't add up. Yeah, I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. And, and the, the way that, you know, the, the implicit assumptions about what is expected from, from women, from, um, by, by the culture, by, um, their partners, by children, all of that is, is, uh, so deeply personal as well as alienating that it kind of manifests on the body. It manifests in relationships. It manifests in symptoms, um, that the the person themselves may not necessarily even understand why they're doing what they're doing, and Certainly that's they don't. yeah, and that's that's I think that why it's important to look at symptoms as language and not and not like stifle them or smother them, right? Like you don't want to get rid of a fever until you know what's causing the infection, right? Um, exactly, and that's why the National Institute of Mental Health condemned the DSM five and the diagnostic statistical manuals as sole materials to use because they don't even ask the question, what happened? How did you get here? And therefore, like Hansel and Gretel, you could follow the, the pebbles in the woods and find your way back. But if you don't know how you got there, you just take a biochemical analysis and say you're unbalanced and give you drugs. You don't find out what happened and how to untangle it so a person doesn't have to be in some kind of magical meeting of the other that is so destructive to her themselves. Bethany, are you familiar at all with like Marsha Linehan's conceptualization of BPD and like dialectical behavioral therapy at all? I mean, it seems like very far away from your orientation, but. I'm, I'm vaguely familiar. Um, okay. But not, I, I wouldn't say, I don't even, familiar may even be too strong of a word, but I, I'm um, a little bit familiar with dialectical behavioral. Um, and I don't, I really have any specific like insights on her work in particular, but I typically am a little hesitant with any sort of cognitive behavioral approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's, there's plenty that can be done with it, especially in like an immediate stressful situation, right? Like it's going to be hard to, um, go in, into analysis if you're having panic attacks, right? Like you need to do something in the in the in the immediate right. situation. But that I, I sort of have problems with. Well, not sort of. I, I do have problems with um, those theories that don't really uh, wrestle with the unconscious. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I think sometimes CBT and DBT can be um, accused of that, um, that they, as I understand DBT, it works in some issue or um, works in like mindfulness and acceptance, um, which I think is, is really helpful in certain situations provided it's not doing like what we're talking about is like uh, stifling those symptoms or um, shutting down conversations and, and shutting down like the subjects, I say subject, but like the person's curiosity about themselves and where this is coming from in the first place, you know? Yeah. And I don't, I mean, we really don't have the time for it just since we got a little bit started late. So, so I was trained in DBT, like really extensive. I'm not DBT certified because it's like you have to do so much to get certified. I was like pretty close and then long story, but um, so I appreciate it a lot. I actually feel almost like I want to protect my little DBT a little bit. Um, <laughs> I almost, almost want to defend it a little bit, but also, also I think coming from a more zoomed out, you know, sort of, I guess, leftist perspective, I do think that um, there's, I, I could just, I'm not going to rant about it, but yeah, I do agree that I guess, okay, I'll just say this. I think the utility of it is that it was, so Marsha Linhan herself was like chronically suicidal, was hospitalized multiple times. And I think it almost from a, almost like peer perspective, like somebody that was going through it, that tried to create some, tried to create something that um, was like meant to like first stabilize those who just like cannot like there's no way that they're ever going to be able to do like long-term psychoanalysis in the state that they're in, get people stabilized so that they can, you know, build what's called like a life worth living. But I do think that generally it is of the CBT flavor, right? Like, I, and I, I think that's where it, um, it's like kind of too bad. And I, I've heard about some, some, I know there's some psychoanalytic traditions that are trying to do shorter term things to sort of compete with this whole world now. And I don't really know anything about that, but I know, I guess there's been some like evidence that briefer psychoanalytic approaches have actually been okay. Like mentalization. I don't even know much about that, but for. Yeah, but also hypnosis is a brief, Mm. is a brief way of doing a Lacanian analysis. Also what Bethany said before really, applies to DBT, if you go with the current behavior, mm-hmm. you could see it in the Lacan- with a Lacanian eye as a system of signs mm-hmm. and follow the signs. Mm-hmm. And so that it, wouldn't, it would be um, something that could coexist nicely with a, a Lacanian analytic framework. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that's true. And I think a lot of the Lacanian not all of it, but a lot of Lacanian practice in the United States right now is done um, in counseling, right? And done, done in um, mm-hmm. under the guise of other things because there, it's it's so hard to get um, psychoanalysis in this country, right? Because you're you're looking at at least once a week, um, every week for years, right? That that's mm-hmm. a commitment that most people cannot afford or um, or have time for. And so I, I know plenty of um, DBT, CBT clinicians who are certified clinicians who would essentially bring in a lot of their, uh, the, the Lacanian or psychoanalytic ethics to their DBT and CBT practice. Because the idea, right, is to get the person talking. Mm. Um, and, and like you're saying, if you're, Max, like if you're in a state of distress, um, there, you know, you have to live too, right? And so the, these um, approaches are, are great for um, addressing um, immediate situations, certain contexts, and, and to essentially get the person ready to address issues and, and start talking and, and 
yeah. investigating themselves. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, psychoanalysis, I think, is, like, psychologically destabilizing in a lot of ways, right? It's almost intended to, like, have you just get in there and mm. shit, shit's supposed to get kind of messy and kind of painful. And if, if somebody's, like, on the brink of suicide or self-harm or whatever, I mean, I do think there's a good case to be made that, like, look, they're not ready for that kind of work yet, right? right? We have to get them to where, like, they're not going to kill themselves, they're not going to end up hospitalized and stuff. Um, but I actually think there's probably good counter-arguments to that and that there's... I think the sort of legalistic litigative culture we live in, all these liabilities and stuff where it's like, okay, we need to use the most evidence-based practice to make sure people don't kill themselves. I mean, this is the kind of thing, I, th I think I've said this once mm -hmm. or twice on the podcast, and I feel weird saying it sometimes because I swear all it takes is someone from the Board of Behavioral Sciences hearing me say this, and they're like, okay, mm -hmm. but, but, but like our entire conceptualization of suicidality and self-harm and destructive behaviors, I think, in the psychology world is huge is very negatively impacted by this sort of litigative liability fear to where I can't, I think we can't even have like a, a helpful conversation about it. Right. Where it's just like, well, now, now we just have to do whatever covers our ass most versus like, right. uh, you know, and it, like once, once that's the primary goal of the clinician, I actually feel like there's something sort of in uh, anti-humanistic and anti-existential and, and anti-connective that can occur, not necessarily, also, I'm just noticing the time and that since we're doing Zoom now, it's going to kick us out in three minutes. Crap. We're going to, I think we're going to have to close out. It's going to have to be shorter, unfortunately. Well, this is a wonderful discussion and I hope that it provokes our listeners the way it's provoked Max and me. And I hope you too, Bethany. Um, yeah, yeah, this was great. Maybe we could do it again and kind of, because it sounds like there's probably a lot more we could get into here. This is like a really, I feel like we could get warmed up a little bit. Um, I really wanted to ask you about incels. That's, that really fascinates me as well. And you've done some work on that. Um, well, that would be a wonderful topic. Insights on incels. Listeners, if you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash it's not just in your head. If you want to contact us, you have anything to say about this conversation or you want to have us pass that on to Bethany, you can email us at um, it's not just in your head at gmail.com. And, and um, we love you even though you're not on Patreon, but we really appreciate the support you give us on Patreon as well. I'll just say it. Love you. Yes, we love you. Um, yes. Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. Uncon unconditionally, I think. Do we love everyone? <laughs> yes. Do we love everyone unconditionally? That's like a whole yeah, podcast yeah, in a episode. <laughs> yeah, in a general way. Okay. We should thank Bethany because this has yeah. been really thought-provoking, Bethany. It's important. Yeah, and yeah. I hope you do come back and talk about incels. Because they're yeah. such a political bomb as well yeah. as a misogynist bomb. Yeah. And a Trumpist bomb and deserve to be explored and exposed. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would love that. Yeah. Good. We'll it's arrange a really it. It's a really important topic. It is. Okay. Bethany. Yeah. Sorry again, because of time and tech issues, we got to end early, but we will, we'll stay in contact and try to make this happen again sometime. Sure. Thank you Great. so much. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, 
our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20% of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com. 